though I spent lots of years working one-to-one -one with individuals, no one ever came into my practice and told me what method to apply to their problem. They would tell me if they didn't get along with their partner or their kids or they felt depressed or whatever it was that they wanted to work on, they explained the problem to me. And when I transitioned over to organizational work, I was really amazed how often I would be engaged and told what method, but not the problem. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Beyond Listening podcast with We Are Open Circles, Miriam Jones and me, Adam Rumack. We are really excited today to have Julie Diamond back on our show. Julie is the founder of Diamond Leadership. It's an organization that provides leadership and talent development services that include coaching, consulting, assessment, and training all over the world, pretty much. Julie is also an author. She wrote Power a User's Guide. She's an executive coach and an international leadership consultant. So for over 25 years now, Julie has been helping to create power intelligence an approach to understanding how power moves in organizations, how to better see and understand our own power, and to really align that power to our values and what it is that we want to accomplish, whether that's individually or collectively. Today, we're going to be specifically diving into two of the tools that Julie has helped to develop, the Diamond Power Index, which helps individuals understand their own power and how it's perceived. So this takes the form of what most of us would understand as a leadership 360, although specifically looking at power. And the Diamond Power Audit, which looks at the whole organization and how power is perceived and used throughout the organization. So both of these tools really get to the heart of the matter when it comes to organizational functioning and dysfunctioning and also provides really insightful levers for change and development, whether it's for the individual or for the collective. So it's always really, really interesting when we get to talk to Julie. Her perspective and her insights are incredibly incisive, and we hope that you will get as much out of listening to her as we do talking to her. Thanks again for listening. Please share this podcast with those that you think might benefit from following the leaders and thinkers and doers that we talk with on this show. And like our podcast, help get some of the message that we're, we're sharing out in the world. You can also follow us online, weareopencircle.com. Follow us on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and join one of our trainings if you're interested. We do these online. And also we're getting out there and doing more out in person and primarily in wilderness areas. So you get to experience both what we're training and learning together, as well as the beauty of the natural world and how it can inspire us to think more deeply about the world and the issues that we're facing in leadership and organizational development, as well as help us to cultivate real community community of change makers, facilitators of consultants, of leaders that believe deeply and are acting accordingly, that there is a better way to work together that can lead to a more thriving, sustainable future for our companies, for ourselves, and for future generations. Thanks again for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, Julie. Hi, Adam. It's really great to be here. And Julie, of course, is an old friend now and was right here at the beginning of the Beyond Listening podcasts. 
Um, today we're in a, a little bit of a different space. This is the second in a series of three podcasts about the value and cost of culture and particularly in relationship to transition and change. And so, Julie, we utilise many of your tools in our process of assessing the adaptability of organisational culture. Now, starting off, I'm really curious about what you think or know is the relationship of power to culture. Big question to start with. Very big question. Well, first of all, let me just say how happy I am to be back with you both. Nice to be here today and to talk about the value of culture. That is a really big question. The connection between power and culture. I think that power for me is is kind of an umbrella topic that really in a way wraps around or covers a lot of how we interact with each other and how we behave and you know, how we use our rank, how we engage through our roles and titles with the different powers, privileges, ranks that we have. And it adds up to how the culture feels a lot. I think that people say the most, you know, decisive factor in whether or not somebody stays or leaves an organization is their immediate supervisor. What they're really saying is, how do people treat you uh, when they have more rank, when they have more power. So for me, it it's at the granular level. It's the way we interact. It's the way we talk. It's the way we hold ourselves. It's the way we listen or don't listen to each other. And a lot of it just has to do with how we hold our power, how we hold ourselves in our power. And I don't just mean positional power, but you know, we have power as insiders, power as experts, power of seniority. Certain departments and organizations have more power than others. They're seen as more central or more important. Does my need trump yours because I'm an engineer or because I'm in sales and I'm bringing in revenue and you're just the legal counsel or HR? So, you know, it shows up in so many ways. It's interesting, the granularity aspect of it, you know, the relationship of of someone, and I hear that in relationship to a role, and when I think about culture, I think about the kind of the habits that are created either, you know, spoken out or, or a bit non-transparently, but the things that are created across in organisations. When you think about power in relationship to an organisational culture, um, are, are, you, are you seeing, you know, both people's in the granular, both people's relationship to power, you know, formal and informal? How do you relate it to the bigger kind of pictures of culture? Are we seeing patterns? Is there particular patterns in different organisations? You know, there's a couple of things that come to mind when you say that. I think it's John Amici who says culture can be defined by the worst behaviour tolerated. How do people treat the lowest ranking member in the organization? That's a picture of your culture, right? How do people engage with low-level staff? You as a customer, your first encounter with the organization, whether you're calling customer support or whether you're buying something and you're engaging with a sales team or whatever, that encounter is a picture of culture. So when we talk about patterns, I, I think when we talk about culture a lot, we think a lot about messaging. 
right? We think about the, the values or the vision or the statements. We think about, you know, processes, procedures, how things are done. And I think we need to look at this granular level. How do we behave? What are our rituals around how we show up at meetings? Are we on time or are we not? What's tolerated? Do we interrupt or not? What's the norm? It's that level of patterns that I think power emerges really, really clearly. That's where we see that behavior, sort of what I call the power behaviors. By the way, someone who writes about this, who I really like, has written a book about culture, Ben Horowitz, who wrote a fabulous book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, followed up with a great book on culture called What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. And he talks about virtues. He says that we focus a lot on values, but we're not focusing enough on virtues, you know, which are more at the behavioral level. That's very aligned with how I look at it. I love that. Remind me of going back to Wendy Palmer's podcast, Falling to the le- Level of Our Practice. You know, there's how we would like to see ourselves <laughs> and there's how we are. Right. And, and that idea that it is actually our actions and behaviors which speak to our culture, not necessarily what we proclaim as our culture. Very much. It's people's experience on the ground. And it goes back to what you initially said is it's my experience of my supervisor that makes me right. want to leave a place or not. That's how I experience the culture, through the people around me and through the actions around me. And our customers and our clients and our vendors and our stakeholders their first interaction is an experience of the culture. And we have to be mindful of how that culture is sort of filtering out into the world. How do other people experience our culture? Yeah. One thing, Julie, that I, I'm just coming out of working with a client who did the Diamond Power Index, which is the individual tool and Diamond Power Assessment being the organizational assessment. By the way, it's audit, the Diamond Power audit. Ah, I know. audit. Sorry. I, I, sorry. I, should have na- I should have named them more memorable, but the index, the Diamond Power Index is the 360, the Diamond Power Audit is the culture survey. That makes so much more sense. So we talked a lot about the relative perceptions. Right. So subordinates rated him very differently from bosses, what that showed him about his positionality and the types of power he's comfortable or not comfortable using. So both relative and contextual. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that when we talk about culture, a lot of outcome-driven systems, leaders will uh, kind of glaze over, right? Because it is so relative and it can feel so subjective. Mm-hmm. And one of the powers of your tool is to turn that relative perception or subjectivity into data. Mm-hmm. And we can right. look at that data and say, okay, here's the difference between what you say and what you do, but also how other people perceive it. Exactly. Culture feels squishy to a lot of people. You know, what, what is it? I can't see it. How do I wrap my hands around it? How do we work with it? And it is squishy. It's not, you know, visible. It's, it's hard to quantify. So I think when you start to look at behaviors, when you start to look at this granular level, like how do people behave? How are they engaging with each other? How do they show up? What is the experience people are having of the management, of other coworkers, of the culture at large, and you could put that into data, you could put that into visible, observable behaviors. I think you start to be able to have that impact. You start to be able to have something to, to sort of hold onto, to improve, to measure, to work with. And, and that's really the goal of the Diamond Power Audit. I have a follow-up question, and it's about alignment. So culture 
and alignment towards purpose. I think we tend to have our preferences as coaches or consultants or leaders. We have preferences for the types of organizations that we're going to work with that are aligned with our own either virtue or value. But some types of power dynamics or power within systems can be very functional for one outcome and very dysfunctional if they're working towards another outcome. And I'm thinking here of something like a social services organization versus a law enforcement organization. The outcomes might be different and the culture can be very different. And I wonder how you conceive of that, how the tools that you use, how the theories of human behavior that you bring in take that into account. That's an interesting question, if I've understood it correctly. So we don't categorize the kinds of power, whether the organization, whether it's a more, let's say, command control, or whether it's more positional, whether it's more flat, whether it's more relational types of power or influential and formal kinds of power. For us, we recognize that all kinds of powers are often always in operation. So my seniority interacts with my role, as does my social identity, whether I'm a white woman or a black man, whether I'm young, whether I'm old. So there's not ever just one type of power in operation. And organizations also can be very hierarchical, but they, let's say, for example, uh, an engineering firm could be very hierarchical, but actually power is really, really present through expertise and intelligence, right? Whereas another organization can be flatter, but power is really carried through informal networks and connections. How close are you to the founders and were you there from the beginning? So this is almost always the case with all organizations. So our research is based on stories and cases and incidents that we've collected in thousands of organizations around the world about how people experience others' power. What is a good and what is a bad use of power? Very simple. So we don't really say like this kind of power, you know, a role power, informal power, expertise power, just how does somebody use their power? What is a good use and what is a bad use? And so from that, we're able to just get right down to a behavioral level. So I could be very condescending because of my experience or my seniority or my social identity, right? It doesn't really matter which power I'm using to, to communicate my superiority to you. You will feel it nonetheless. And so it, it's at that behavioral level that we're looking at. And this is going to be useful and valid, whether we're looking at a paramilitary hierarchical organization or whether we're looking at a flat, informal social service organization or charity. What I'm hearing is the pool of power is essentially the same in any human system. Right. And how it shows up and manifests structurally can be very different. Right. But right. the experience of it will often be the same. Yeah, exactly. How you, when I use my power, how you feel is going to be the same, regardless of whether I'm drawing on having more seniority in the organization than you, or being your boss, or just feeling like I'm smarter than you. Whatever, whatever power I'm drawing on, my behavior will be recognizable to you, and the experience I create in you will make you feel a certain mm -hmm. way. Yeah. I often go back to that squishiness of culture. And I think part of, as I'm listening to you, Julie, what I love about the audit is that a human system is a complex web. 
mm-hmm. as you describe it, and, and in this case, power of structure, of relationships, of, you know, power being formal structure, the way people interrelate. And so often in the work that I've done in organisations, there's this real attempt to separate out or to sort of divorce yourself from that complexity by actually creating a structure that will solve relational issues, for example. And we'll try and do it on the level of strategy for the organisation. And I'm saying all of this to test something because I think in the audit, and this is particularly why we like to use it as we're looking at an organisation, is that what I'm hearing is it's actually at the local level that you're going to get a better idea of what's going on because of the complexity. Like what you're looking at in the audit is actually this intermeshing of all of these things, structure and culture, and what that does to how people perform at work and what it costs the Mm organisation. And that's actually what takes that kind of squishiness and the need to kind of box the squishiness but actually says, hey, listen, here is where you're going to see the cost Mm -hmm. um, of what's happening. Yeah, the cost is an interesting point. So to simplify this as we're looking at, you know, how healthy is this organizational culture? What's the what's the health? How do people feel in this culture? How well are they able to perform? How well are they able to bring them, themselves in and feel well in this culture? So we measure it along these seven dimensions. And what we've done, though, is we've tied employee experiences to relevant outcomes, two in particular very relevant outcomes that directly impact costs, job satisfaction and turnover intention. So we produce from that what we call a driver analysis. So you get the results and it says, here's how people feel, how empowered do they feel, how fair do they feel the organization is, how psychologically safe is it, all these different dimensions. And then at the end we say, Here's the driver analysis. These are your lowest performing items, right? And these are the ones that are most correlated with job satisfaction and turnover intention. So those are the two most important things for every organization to focus on, right? We know that, and that's been proven to the research. So if you focus on these five items, we take those lowest performing scores and we turn them into recommendations. Do these five things. You will have the Biggest impact if you focus on these five things immediately. And that's, I think, one of the problems people have with surveys. I'm going to pop up now to a more macro level. One of the problems people have with surveys is they're extremely informative. But then afterwards, you're like, what do I do first? Where do I begin? What's the how? How do I make this actionable? What do I do with this? And so that's one of the things that we really try to address the behaviors that can be changed and here's how and here are solutions. And these are the ones that will most directly go to cost and have the biggest impact. Yeah. And that's very quantifiable. <laughs> you know, that is very it, quantifiable. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are the drivers? There's five that you give them to focus on. Do you have a no, it depends. It depends on the item. So the drivers are actually derived from the lowest performing items. So for example, let's say that one of the lowest items has to do with the perception that management isn't engaged with the day-to-day. You know, they don't know what's going on and the employee perception is they don't care. So if that's a low performing item and if that's the one that correlates with job satisfaction, we will create the driver for that would be something like 
a suggestion on how to create mechanisms for managers to more directly engage with frontline staff or to create processes for that. If you do these suggestions, you'll have the biggest impact. So there aren't just five drivers. I was just saying each report will have three to five main drivers based on those scores, based on those results. Okay. then that's a great example. And I'm wondering, you've written recently about the two big buzzwords in organizations and impactful and rightfully so are burnout and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I'm wondering how lack of diversity of inclusion, of equity, or a sense of belonging, how those factor in as drivers or, you know, potentially in how they're being addressed in organizations as Mm -hmm. limiters of actual Mm -hmm. change when it comes to uses of power and, and effective uses of power. It's one of the most common uses of the DPA is for diversity, equity, inclusion, working at, you know, what's people's experience. I did talk about seven dimensions that we measure, and many of those dimensions line up directly with issues relevant to DEI. So, for example, psychological safety, do I feel safe to speak up? Fairness and equity, does it feel like it's fair? Does, is my work recognized? Um, is it judged on its merit? Conflict competence. Are are managers willing to speak up? You know, are people encouraged to speak up? Is debate and difference and disagreement like properly and productively managed here? Is it respectful? Is it safe? So there's a lot of dimensions of power behavior that are directly overlapping with what is uh, experienced in DEI as problematic. So the tool has a direct application with DEI, and it's been used with that as well. And one of the other things about the DPA that I want to call out is that our scales, the reliable and valid scales, line up with major dimensions of leadership behaviors. So the DPI, the leadership tool, and the DPA have parallel scales. I think one of the key, key unique things about the DPA and what makes it really valuable is that we're really able to connect the dots between leaders as architects of culture, leaders and their behavior, and the way employees experience the culture. We're able to not just measure employee satisfaction in regards to inclusion, diversity, equity, belonging, but also then link it back to how our managers and leaders behaving, what can they do to improve that experience for all employees? I'm so curious about this question. It's just come up. Some of the questions we ask, I've kind of heard some of it and hear you saying, but I've never asked you this. Have you ever also included in the DPA client or market perceptions of the organizational culture as well. Is that something you've ever kind of been interested in? Yes, we have. We actually, one company that we worked with was very interested in the experience of contract labor in a particular department. So it wasn't quite customers, but they were not part of the organization and they were very curious about that. And that is something that I think is really valuable. And I think that you know, a really forward-looking company these days, you know, we're in such a networked world right now. So not just clients, but vendors, other stakeholders, funders, investors, contract organizations, a lot of companies also offshore entire departments right now, whether it's customer service, whether they're engineers, programmers, and incorporating them, having that group also fill in the DPA, fill in the survey would be really valuable. And 
such a great part of the DPA is disaggregating data. We haven't even talked about that, but being able to break it down by employee group or by not employees, but by how do, what do our customers say? What does our board say? Yeah, I think I asked that question because I remember one of the most useful things when I did the DPI was seeing how my staff saw me, their perceptions of me, then how my clients, their perceptions of me, and then peers and and then people I report to, like board, and just seeing how they were so completely different. And I think also being able to really pinpoint where the issue was. And I imagine in an organisational context with that audit, it allows you to really pinpoint as well, actually, that's actually where we need to do the work. You know, if you're talking about employee groups, oh, we really need to do the work here. You know, for me, it allowed a kind of a prioritisation. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to put my developmental focus on this because this is actually where it's obvious I need to have a developmental focus. Do you find the same thing comes out of the DPA because it really helps you be more laser sharp in how you prioritise, where you put your energy? Absolutely. One of the things that I talk about, and I'm doing this webinar now, I'm going to be focusing again on this in the next session, which is, I call it the what and the where. So you could really plot specifically, what do I need to focus on and where? And a lot of times when we talk about, especially coming back to diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, or employee well-being or psychological safety, it's like one thing and it's not broken down. So one of the things we find is like, you know, this organization can can be experienced as fair, but also at the same time clickish. Or this organization, I feel there's psychological safety, but I don't feel empowered. I don't feel I'm given enough to grow and develop in my role. And what's more, those are really specific. And so if you could really parse it out, sometimes we just think of equity as one thing or inclusion as one thing, when really it's many different things. Now overlay on top of that, where? So this group feels they're getting a lot of support and empowerment, but this group doesn't. One of the places this shows up across many companies that we work with is tenure level. Again, something we're not thinking about a lot. So for example, I've seen where first year of your journey with this company, you're empowered, you're getting lots of support, you're getting lots of encouragement. At the senior levels, you're really empowered. You're getting lots of encouragement, lots of executive coaching. And right in the middle, people feel lost. I see that again and again. And that gets really specific. So empowerment, you could break it down by, let's say, racial groups or ethnic groups or gender, and you might get good scores. And you think people feel generally well here, but break it down by tenure level and you realize, wow, we're really neglecting people at the middle management level. Like after they've been onboarded, we kind of forget about them until they're executives. It's a common problem. This, like, out of this is a lot of cost savers actually as well. You know, I've seen a lot of money thrown at problems in a kind of misguided way. Whereas what I'm hearing is you can get really precise. You know, I love the analogy you give quite often about the diagnosis, like a doctor. So Mm -hmm. you can be really like treat very precisely what's going on in the body of the organization Mm -hmm. um, and save a lot of resources in the kind of blanketing that sometimes happens. So again, back to that cost and value. The, The example I gave at a webinar recently, you know, there was a lot of turnover and a lot of churn around black employees in in a given organization, and they just were not sure how to address it. And they tried so many different things. And once we saw it was the tenure level 
So the, 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 the beginning managers, supervisors up to the middle level were just not being focused on, which created the knock-on effect was that you know, entry level or newcomers, uh, black employees or minoritized employees were not getting the support they needed, but it was due to that lack of attention to those lower and middle levels of management. What's the largest scale that you've run the DPA? I would say a couple thousand, We, but the DPA is really ideal for no upper limit actually. I, you know, we're more concerned with the lower limit because you want to be able to get valid representative data. So upper limit, there's there's really no upper limit to what we can get. So companies of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 employees, I think the largest we've run is somewhere in the vicinity of 2,000 at this point. As my mind is apt to do, thinking about using this on community levels or in government. That would be fantastic. Really, yeah. you know, in the way that politics can connect cause and effect for political ends, really turning that around and saying, these are the root causes of the problem that we see on the surface, the symptoms, you know, using the data to create a solution rather than using potentially ideology, which is spinning us around in circles in so many ways, Yeah. whether we're in an organization or as part of a community or part of a hopefully representative democracy. You know, it's interesting that you say that. We could go down quite a rabbit hole on that. But um, I, I do Good. think whether we call it ideology or theory, I see this a lot with organizations. And I talk about this quite a bit that I crawl out of a individual practitioner psychotherapy box. So I spent lots of years working one-to-one -one with individuals. No one ever came into my practice and told me what method to apply to their problem. They would tell me the challenges they were having in their life. They didn't get along with their partner or their kids, or they felt depressed or whatever, couldn't find a satisfying job, whatever it was that they wanted to work on, they explained the problem to me. And when I transitioned over to organizational work, I was really amazed how often I would be engaged and told what method, but not the problem, right? We need training on power, or we need help with conflict resolution, or helping people speak up, but I didn't know why. What's the problem we're trying to solve here? It was I was given sort of a method to apply. So just, just to go back to what you said about ideology and versus data, you know, it, it's refreshing to think that we need to start with what the problem areas are and what are people really You're suffering from, and then language. from there build up <laughs> an intervention or from there build up a yeah, solution. We, we, in the first series, we just talked about that first step yeah. being so important in terms of gathering data and us coming in and having that time to observe and listen. And, you know, my my frustration over the years of seeing organisations spend all this money on Band-Aids, you know, not only Band-Aids, but there was a wound in the foot and the Band-Aid was on the ear, you know. <laughs> and I'm really interested in the short-term versus long-term focus and the relationship of the data that comes through the audit and, and where that focus is, so the, the short-term and the long-term focus of organizations in, in change? Well, from the perspective of the tool itself, so we're looking at behaviors, and by definition, behaviors are malleable and changeable. So when we're looking at trying to work with a culture and we get a picture of people's experience of culture based on these sort of everyday behaviors inside the organization, how people show up, their practices, how they're engaging with each other... This should change and it should change, I don't want to say quickly, but we're looking at doing before and afters 
within nine to 15 months span, perhaps depending on how the size of the organization, depending on how much they're engaged and really focusing on their issues. So that's a fairly short term, but we do expect to see movement and we do expect to see change. We're measuring things that are movable. That's the value of this particular instrument and the impact drivers that we talked about. You know, here are the results. Here's what we can focus on. Here's how to focus on them. Here are the quickest wins you can have. And then let's measure again in 9, 12, 15 months. And, you know, I have to really call out here, like, remeasuring is a really complicated thing that people's behaviors change more quickly than their reputations do. So I always say leave a little bit extra time because even though people have changed, the lingering impression that that person or those people or the organization makes on people, it takes longer to sort of clear the air from the past. We know that. John Gottman's research on marriage and relationship, you know, how many positive statements does it take to undo one negative statement? Something like seven to one. So we know that a negative experience lingers longer. As you were talking, I was pondering quantifiable behavior and its relationship to identity. And and I think what I was getting as you were talking was, you know, by changing this behavior that I'm experiencing around me, my perception of the identity of the organization changes. What I think I hear you say is it can change quite quickly. Like a, a 15 months is a, a relatively short time. So people's right, I see sense of the identity mm-hmm. of the organization can change. And I'm interested in that. I know that that may be not what mm-hmm. the DPA is measuring, but I'm interested in your experience of that from working with clients. That's a good question. I think, yes, if my immediate experience around me changes and I feel differently based on my interactions, my experience of the organization will definitely change. The tone at the top, how that's coming down, like lots of things go into my experience of the organization and its identity, how I experience this organization. What we need to think about a lot is that there's not one culture, there's a lot of subcultures in an organization, especially with companies that have locations across the globe, which is more and more the case. And we find this a lot, that people's experience of the organization really changes depending on their department, their city, their location, and the subculture of the organization at its location in Germany is very different from the subculture in Mexico or North America or Japan. And that's huge when we think about that. So there's really not one company culture, there's many And what I think companies have to really be mindful of is aligning culture without losing the uniqueness of each sort of subculture, but aligning. Employees should expect a certain uniformity no matter where they're posted. Let's say you change someone and they go from one part of the organization to another. There should be a certain uniformity of experience while allowing for unique variation of, of, of style. I'm going to go off on a tangent here. I think there's too much focus on leadership style independent of culture. So I think that leadership development is a little bit too much focused. I'm going to sort of go out on a limb here on authenticity and style and vulnerability and, 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 and this sort of like this individual I, this is who I am. And, you know, when you have a company where everybody's focused on their individual leadership style, 
you're not going to have a certain consistency across. And from an employee's perspective, I think the employee's less concerned about the uniqueness of my manager's style. That leadership individual style is so American because I think about, you know, different cultures in Europe and, you know, there is a different emphasis. But I think that leadership development, that individuality, you know, has really come out of the States. We do export things, Down good and bad. It. Like I'm working in different parts of the globe and I, everybody's excited uh-huh. now about, you know, authenticity. Yeah. So the DPA, what I hear and my experience of it is that it's measuring organizational health. So the health aspects of it, I'm assuming are regardless of the individual identity of different companies, as we've said, where the research, like where did the backup come to say this is healthy and this is not? Like where did you get that from? Well, there's a lot of different ways to measure health. So there's some people will say engagement is a sign of health, right? So that's probably one of the most uniformly recognized researches done on what makes an organizational healthy. People are engaged. So there's a lot of research saying that people's ability to speak up, people's ability to engage, absenteeism versus presence. There's a lot of research that goes into what makes something healthy and what are signs of unhealth or dysfunction. So we've based this on healthy use of power, which was our unique research where we talked about what are good and bad or healthy and unhealthy uses of power in organizations by leaders. And then we looked at what would emerge, those behaviors that emerge, those seven dimensions, and we saw their linkage to organizational health. How does this also show up? What are the impacts on organizations? And also when we built a tool, we took this large pool of experimental items and we tested it with respondents right across thousands of different organizations across all major industries. And again, we tied them to relevant outcomes like job satisfaction and intent and turnover intent. So those are some very researched and proven signs and symptoms of health. You know, if people want to stay, if people are happy with their jobs, how how do we know that these prove that an organization's healthy? They line up with these other dimensions of organizational health. So these power behaviors are very much go towards whether people feel there's psychological safety, whether they can speak up, whether people experience equity. And that's a really major factor of organizational health as well. So we've looked carefully at the research and the literature to see that these dimensions really do point to a healthy organization. I just want to say that's that's incredible. And I think that that's something just right at the center, that the use of unhealthy power equals an unhealthy system. Am I making it too simplicity? You, you know, we're still researching this. As much as I'm focused on power, I also want to say I think this is really true, that good health of power means a good, healthy organization. And there's other research out there that talks about different dimensions. I mean, there's a lot now around psychological safety, but I think that's a dimension of power as well. The freedom to speak up has a lot to do with how people experience power around them. Fairness, whether things feel fair and my work is judged on its merit, definitely has a lot to do with power. Uh, The truth of the ongoing research, I think, speaks to the complexity of what you're working with here and its validity. That it's not a simple answer. It's not a, a one to five, one to 10 score on an engagement survey. That there are multi factors that are influencing each other. 
and then your ability to identify what are the most important of those factors. And I want to go back to engagement. I mean, just to say that's a really valuable tool and that has a purpose. It's a super quick, it's a super easy tool. So if you feel that you know is engagement is the temperature you want to measure and you can do that periodically, that's a great tool. If you feel you need to really look into your culture and understand what's going on and figure out pain points, then you're going to need something different. You're going to need this deeper dive. Our focus and our specialty is transitions. Those periods of perhaps two cultures coming together or a period of leaping from a founder organization to something which mm-hmm. is not led right. by the founder but a group of executives, you know, m- massive transitions for organizations when that deep dive, like really knowing what the pain points are and and then in our case, okay, well, what does that mean as you're going through this growth phase? What does that mean in terms of where you're going to need to be really aware of people's relationship with transitions? Because we are focused on the organization's ability to adapt and transition, I'm really interested in, you know, what your perspective is on organizational change. I was just thinking, you know, we're about to renovate uh, a kitchen, not about, I wish it was about, it's, things are moving slow around <laughs> in this domain, as many people are aware. But a transition point more reveals what's already there than creates, right? So for example, remodeling is a metaphor for you know, an organizational change process. And so it really reveals what's happening in the culture. So a really strong or healthy culture going through a change process, it's a very different beast than something that's you know, been relying on kind of outmoded or disorganization or some kind of dysfunctional relationships. It's going to reveal some other real problems. So when I think about organizational change, I think it's an incredibly critical moment. And it's as much about revealing what's been there all along as it is about raising new sets of problems. You know, when you talk about moving from founders to a set of executives, professional managers versus founders, we see that all the time, you know, where people have been relying on friendships and relationships and culture of insider, outsider, or friends working together. So that transition point really reveals what's been missing or how things have been working that are really dysfunctional and can't be carried forward. Yeah, can be really useful information because in a sales process or in a merger process, people tend to go, it's a bit like Mm -hmm. why I'm interested in using the DPA for clients as well. It's like, this is how we present ourselves. This is us. And then when they get into the merger or into the acquisition culturally is when on a behavioral level, they experience that this is not what you you know, it's like, this is not what you, this is not what you said you were, you know, and what happens at that point. This is not what I ordered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we have worked with mergers and acquisitions also across countries. So mergers and acquisitions themselves are problematic. And oftentimes we're looking at not just the country culture, but maybe their companies from different countries. You know, I think there's nothing really wrong with the ideal marketing. They say, here's where we want to be. Here's our new company or here's the we're merging now or we're forming a new company, and here's our ideal. And I think that this, the DPA or something like this, helps you close the gap. How do we go from where we are to where we want to be? What do we need to work on to focus that? Because I do think that companies like humans 
we do have ideals. I do wake up in the morning and say, I want to be more fit, or I want to be you know, more organized, or I want to spend more time not just yelling at the dog, but having <laughs> meaningful engagement, whatever that might be. That's human, and companies do that, and humans do that. We carry with us this tendency to name and reach for ideals and to fall flat on our face when it's pointed out that we're not living into those ideals. And so have a measurement tool to say, okay, where am I not being that person that I want to be? And what do I need to do to close that gap? I I think that's really valuable. James Clear, who wrote that wonderful book, Atomic Habits, talks about this. He says that to change a habit, it's really important to not just think about the behavior, but to think about the identity. You know, instead of saying, I don't smoke, you say, I'm a non-smoker. You're evoking an identity, and that's like living at that level of ideal. Um, But that's actually motivating. So we're always embarrassed by our ideals because it's always being pointed out how we're not living up to them, but we just can't get away from having them. I feel like that's a great place to end here. A really good reminder for me and Miriam, maybe even for the three of us, we teach what we most need to learn ourselves. I know that's true for me. You know, for those of us that are working with organizations, trying to help others by looking at some of the issues that the DPA and the DPI pull out to remember that it's an opportunity and that gap between the ideal and the reality is an opportunity for growth. We create those to move ourselves forward, to move our people forward, our organization, and just focus on that. Yeah. And I, and I think just as well, what I got from that last bit was that also this is true of transitions that in the revelation of transitions and instead of seeing those revelations as problems to be fixed, but see those revelations as opportunities Mm -hmm. for, for that growth. And with the DPA and the DPI, having the tools to diagnose and to assist in that process. Yeah. And making something that's very squishy, (laughs) very tangible. Thank you so much, Julie. It's such a joy to learn with you and really happy to have you with us. Thank you both. It's always great to connect with you. The Beyond Listening podcast is brought to you by We Are Open Circle, a social impact business that helps change makers, organizations, and community groups evolve and thrive with integrity in our rapidly changing world. Our Beyond Listening program was designed to transform the way organizations work with complexity, rapid change, and the wisdom of diversity in a world that demands constant collective adaptation. Sign up for our newsletter for more Beyond Listening podcasts and view our upcoming trainings.